Well, again, a warm and lively welcome to all of you who have joined us and are clustering around the Word of God and fellowshipping together. We're glad you're here. Uh, let's turn, if we could, to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, as we continue our steady march through the book of Luke. <clears throat> he entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He is gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, half of my possessions I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderfully familiar passage that we probably need to know more about. Um, Lord, we thank you that there are some things, there are some gems that are perhaps hidden in this text that were fully intended to come to light um, as, we, as we study, and we, we delight in that. We delight in the genius of the Word of God. We delight in the absolute um, truthfulness and accuracy of the Word of God, and, and we delight in the sufficiency of the Word of God today. And in doing that, we're not worshiping you, we are worshiping the God who spoke. And so, Lord, move our hearts to embrace truth as you define it, as you can only be the one that defines it. Move our hearts, Lord, then to obedience to that truth, conform us into the image of your Son as we cluster about your word, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> you probably have no insight into this because I don't usually announce what the topic of my sermon is, but uh, today I am doing that. And the topic or the title of my sermon is How Christ Does Not call sinners. And uh, it's because very often when we take a very familiar passage, we need to do a little bit of deconstructing of our thinking so that we can then go ahead and, and really learn what the passage is saying. Well, one of the complaints about preaching through a book of the Bible line by line, verse by verse, as we here at this church are prone to do, 
is that our methodology excludes the possibility of handling pressing current affairs. For the record, I see that as a strength. And I prefer not to have a deliberate method, the deliberate method, um, consistent teaching from the pulpit be interrupted and shaped by Fox News headlines or the latest local tragedy or some natural disaster or some political inst- incident. I don't want to have that leading the pulpit. The practice tends to direct people's principal interest away from devouring the Word of God and toward devouring current events bulletins. But on occasion, the text of the day wonderfully equips us for the conflict of the day, and we find ourselves at such a juncture today. Well, this is a passage that we are so familiar with that we may not well understand it all that well. Many of us, if we grew up in the church Sunday school, learned a children's chorus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree. The Savior for to see, actually pretty accurate so far. And as the Lord was passing by, he looked up in the tree, and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down. Now the next line is going to demonstrate whether you came from a bit of a British background or something else. Because I was taught in good British tradition, Zacchaeus, you come down from going to your house for tea. And the genius of that, of course, is it rhymes with tree. And it fits all of our expectations is that he would be going there for a cup of Earl Grey and a scone. Um, it's probably now that has been altered, and you probably now are, are hearing it for I'm going to your house today. It has the disadvantage. It doesn't really rhyme with tree in any kind of way, but, but it is more accurate. In fact, it's biblical. Um, but anyway, that is, that it is a very familiar passage, and, and the narrative is relatively simple, relatively simple. He's walking toward Jerusalem. He's announced that. He's on his way to Jerusalem for the last time, for the last Passover, where he will be the Passover lamb with finality. And there's a massive pressing crowd following and surrounding him at all times. Some, even in that crowd, are presumptuously going ahead and without any official delegation of authority to them, are acting as crowd control and they're trying to sweep aside and silence the ones they view as undesirable, like wretched, blind beggars from the last time we were in this passage. He's left the ancient city ruins and is either in the residential or the commercial Jericho, likely the, ra- the latter in the commercial section of the two-stage Jericho. Well, the crowd now has the effect of actually diminishing the exposure of Jesus to the people rather than enhancing the possibility. Case in point, the chief tax collector, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was rather optimistically named by his parents, as his name means pure, pure. The chosen course of his life was anything but. Jericho was on a very important merchandise trade route high-value merchandise passing through on a daily basis. As such, Zacchaeus would have paid off the Roman authorities very handsomely for the rights 
to this taxation hunting ground. The monetary quota imposed on him as the chief owner of this taxation franchise would have been enormous. He needed to be bringing in the money because the Romans were cracking the whip over him. But by employing an army of unscrupulous thugs, really tax-gathering subcontractors, Zacchaeus had managed to collect that Roman quota plus a great deal more. The street-level tax-gathering thugs collected significantly more than was due at his sponsorship and usually at the protection of a guard or two of the Roman government. Having street-level thugs doing the work protected him from much direct interaction and the possibility of getting beat up, which was always a little bit lively. The tax thugs kept a cut of their overcollections and then passed on a generous cut to Zacchaeus in order to keep their post. Zacchaeus gathered from many thugs and uh, was of a consequence very rich. The only people who would associate with him as a further consequence would be prostitutes, fellow thieves, and people who had dropped any pretense of morality who were referred into society simply as the sinners, the sinners. He would roughly correspond to the sort of a traitor to his nation mafia boss who ignored public opinion or public favor of his day. Uh, many of the narcos in, in various places who are mafia uh, maintain a presence where they're kind of favored by the people. They try and do nice things for the local people and they, they gain their support uh, through that. He didn't do that. He, he was just straight out, uh, straight out mafia and uh, he didn't have to win their favor because he had the support of the Roman army.
dagger in the folds of their clothing. And that thin dagger was uh, not to serve to whittle in, in their leisure. It was to covertly thrust into the back of a collaborator in a tumultuous, jostling public crowd such as this one where they could jab it in, give it a twist, pull down on it, and get away in the crowd and not be discovered, but this guy dies. So they were the Sicarian, and so a teeming, milling, moving crowd was excellent hunting ground for a zealot. So, uh, just so that you remember, and you kind of got a picture of this, Simon the Zealot, remember him? One of the twelve. That's what his background was. He was an internal local terrorist. But now he's been converted by the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's hanging out with Levi, called Matthew, who was a tax collector. You go, how does that work? That is the miracle of conversion, and where your highest loyalty, your first loyalty, is to the Lord Jesus Christ above any kind of a political movement it pulls people who would naturally be sworn enemies into warm fellowship. Isn't that wonderful? At any rate, that's, uh, that's the zealot, and he's up, he's up a sycamore tree. The sycamore tree was limmy enough of a, of a tree for children to climb easily. He likely thought that this was a means of being able to see but being out of the limelight. Zacchaeus deliberately chose a persona in all of his life, uh, and he was very comfortable with the idea of being an outsider looking on from a safe distance. That was basically a picture of his life. And all of that, climbing a tree, being in there, kind of scooting back into the, into the, the thick of the tree, works a treat. It went just perfectly until... Until someone stops, very obviously looks up into the tree, and points you out to the entire crowd by talking to you. Now, instead of being inconspicuous, you are, on the contrary, oh, you are showcased. You are highlighted. It, it'd be the last thing he wanted. Well, we continue. Verse 5. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, wait a minute, had, had there been a formal introduction that we were not familiar with here? No, because remember Zacchaeus was trying to figure out who he even was. He walks up and he says, Zacchaeus, why would that be? I'm glad you asked. We'll talk about that next Sunday, Lord willing. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For today I must stay at your house. Today I must. There is a pre-arranged requirement. There is a predetermined appointment. And I must stay at your house. Which is more than uh, stop by for, for a cup of tea and a scone. It's bigger than that, we'll see. It, it's actually, the idea is bunk, overnight. Well, 
why would he say that? Why would he say we have a prearranged appointment? Why would he say any of that? And I'm glad you asked those questions. Isn't that wonderful? And I'm hoping to answer those questions, Lord willing, next time we get together. Well, you're familiar with the, the, the thing. And I'm going to skip down now for a moment to verse 8. Because in what's happening in the public discourse of this verse currently, everybody does. Everybody then immediately skips down to verse 8 and says, Zacchaeus stopped. When did he stop? What, when did this conversation take place? It's actually pretty important to find that out. But anyway, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Remarkable change of character and behavior and inferred passions, desires, loyalties. It's amazing. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. And then in case we're scratching our head and going, so what's the point of all of this? What was on the heart of Jesus but here's, here's our takeaway, and then reported by Luke. Luke is being faithful and saying, here's the takeaway we should have of this, and that is, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Okay? Well, this verse, verse 8 and 9, these verses, and this event is used to make a case currently in professed Christendom, for two styles of evangelism or two strategies of evangelism I would heartily disapprove of. And so before I go in and say here's what the passage is teaching, I think it's important to, for me to disabuse your minds of, of, of some of these theories that are running around, lest you say, okay, well that's true and, and so also is what I've learned before. I, I need to do some deconstructing, and so that's what I'm up to this week. But before we do a deep dive into what the text does teach, because this is such a well-worn ground, let us f- first consider what the text, I believe, is not teaching. Hence, the title of my sermon this morning, How Christ Does Not Save Sinners. Well, there are two main evangelism strategies that are promoted using this text as its proof. False strategy number one. And you will see this showing up in a great many churches. Evangelism and transformation through proximity and association. Evangelism and transformation of the human heart through proximity association. You go, does anyone believe that? Oh yeah, they do. Yes, they do. The argument goes this way, and here's how it's presented. Zacchaeus was an outcast and he was marginalized. Oh, that sounds familiar. He was, he was marginalized. Okay, so immediately we've got him cast in the role of a victim, which everyone is familiar with. He's, he's been marginalized. So, in order to bring about new life and spiritual reformation, 
Jesus chose to associate with this one who had been disassociated, who had disassociated himself from his culture and God, and Jesus chose to do whatever it took to bring Zacchaeus into physical proximity with him and his followers, and that is the psychological strategy that won this tax collector into being a converted follower. That's the theology behind it. Okay? Jesus says, I'm coming to your house, even though the crowd disagrees and disapproved, and the man, as this story, this theory is being expounded, and the man was immediately without a word, listen, this is how it's being taught, without a word about his sin, his sinful affections, or even a hint about having faith in Jesus, or the need of a Savior, or a sin-bearer, is converted. And they take it from this text. Jesus accepted him, and Zacchaeus accepted Jesus. That's the watchword that is taken out of this passage. And that, we're told, is the winning form of evangelisms, and that's how we're supposed to do evangelism. Look, that's what the passage says. You accept them, and they accept Jesus. It's salvation through association, proximity, and affirmation. Get them to start coming to church by understanding what they want, their felt needs, and craft a church experience to deliver that. Our culture craves and demands that everyone else accepts me, affirms me, in whatever lifestyle or moral code I chose to live by and define and defines everything else any disagreement as hate. So, don't hate love. Don't hate love as they understand love, is what we're told. Well, I've lost my notes. There we go. As they hang out with you because you have avoided offending them, but rather affirmed their desired sense of moral wellness and superior, and you've catered to them, their being in proximity with you and associating with you as you accept them inevitably and rather quickly results in them becoming Christians and followers of Jesus. This presupposition is operating somewhere in the background of every seeker-friendly initiative in evangelism or church. That's the background presupposition. Is there any evidence, though, from the text that this theory is built on faulty presuppositions. Well, the first piece of evidence that this premise is false is found in verse 6. And he hurried down, well, actually it's verse 5, I must stay at your house. And the idea there is it's an extended stay, it's, it's an overnighter. And and it says, and he hurried down and came down and, boy, again, he's, he's chosen a very specific word. He received him gladly. And, and if we are not being careful and trying to find out what all these words mean, we just kind of rattle over that uh, rather quickly. He hupadenexeto him. And you go, okay, so now I feel, now I'm, now I'm good with that. It, it is a very specific word. It means he received him physically 
into his own dwelling and settled him, hupo, he, he settled him down and fed him and provided overnight billeting. You're saying that word means all of that? Yes. How could one word mean all of that? Luke chose a word that was available and he carefully used it in this particular place. Verse 7. Verse 7. When they, and the antecedent of them, of they is the people who were around, who were the, the milling throng, saw it, they all, and so this is a universal response of the entire crowd, they all began to grumble, saying, he has gone, and our translation has, to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. So they're complaining uh, that Jesus permitted himself to accept Catalusai from Zacchaeus. What does that word mean? And again, what Luke is doing is he's adding up all of these very specific term, terms for a reason, and we are intended to get the real full concept of what actually happened here. This word means basically to, they undid the strings and the straps. You go, what does that mean? Well, it's a, it's a local colloquialism for come over and bunk. This is to untie the straps. It means to unpack your bags, take the bridle or the halter off any animal you might be traveling with, remove your traveling clothes, and settle in for the night. That's what specifically this word means. Is it textually safe to conclude that Jesus said, Zacchaeus, come down, I'm going to your place. He jumps down and says, oh, by the way, I'm, I'm giving up all my stuff. And Jesus says, salvation is, that there was no conversation, that there was no interaction, that there was nothing that went on before, and therefore that's how we do evangelism. Well, emphatically not. In fact, Luke has gone to great pains to make sure that we are not thinking that way. So, um, is it textually safe to conclude that there was no conversation or interaction of any kind between Jesus and Zacchaeus before the events of verse 9? Is the text teaching in a straightforward matter that without... Here's the quote that's being bandied about now. Without a word about his sin, his sinful affections, or even a hint about him having faith in Jesus or the need of a Savior or sin-bearer, Jesus accepted him in his present condition and Zacchaeus immediately without repentance or faith accepted Jesus. Is that what the passage is teaching? Well, you're being told on many fronts that's what it is. Next, and, and that is manifestly not what's going on. Next one, there's, there's something interesting going on here that you only catch if you pay real close attention. Verse 9, And Jesus said to him, Who's the speaker? Jesus. Who is the one who he is chiefly addressing? Zacchaeus. Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. Um, we need to watch the demonstrative pronouns. He doesn't say, which is what we would expect, today has, uh, salvation has come to this house 
because you too are a son of Abraham. He's talking to Abraham, but he's speaking in the third person. You go, I don't understand that. I don't quite get what's going on. Okay? Let me give you an example so that you would kind of see it in, in our context. Okay? So, um, for example, I'm going to pick out somebody who I think will be able to endure this whole thing. Ethan. Good morning. Nice to have you here. Okay? So, in the middle of a public circumstance, Ethan says to me, Do you know something? I have nice boots on. I have nice boots on. I, I like my boots. And as a consequence, and everyone's kind of heard that, as a consequence, I speak to him and I say, Here is a wonderful young man indeed. Check out his boots. I'm speaking to him, but I'm indicating to a larger crowd you should be kind of picking up on the idea of watching his boots. He's, he's done a wonderful job of picking out his boots. We would normally have thought such a good pair of boots would be probably picked out by his wife, but no, on this occasion, it appears that he hit the jackpot and he picked out his own boots and, and they, were a good, they were a good show. I'm speaking to him, but I'm speaking to him in the third person. That's the example that's going on here. And... and I, I appreciate Ethan being willing to do that. You'll, you'll tell that Ethan uh, likes being an example like this because when he feels really good about everybody looking at him in his boots, you'll see just a slight red appear right here. That's, he's, he's liking the experience. Okay. Anyway, that is where I'm speaking to him, but I'm, speaking, I'm referring to him in the third person. That would be kind of what's going on. It infers something. I'm speaking to him in a crowd I'm speaking to him in a crowd. This is a pronouncement Jesus is making to Zacchaeus in a public setting referring to him in the third person. So both, both verse 8 and 9 are back in a public setting and they are both pronouncements given as an apologetic for what has just happened. Jesus overnighted was Zacchaeus. And this is what happened um, and, and was delivered to a public audience. I would even advance the idea that logically it's the next day because Luke says he went to Zacchaeus' home, billeted overnight, and the people accused him of unpacking his travel bags, settling in for the night. So this exchange rationally happened the next day. That's what's going on. So now we know, okay, so this isn't some sort of, a, he says, I accept you, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus pops down and says, okay, well, I accept you. Built into the text, there's an idea that there was a significant exchange that took place. What was that exchange? Well, we're not told. But we do have some hints. We'll get to them in a minute. And this is one of them. And here's the second hint that I believe about what is going on here that is provided by Luke. And the second piece of evidence that I believe Luke provides for his reader is something called the book of Luke. Something called the book of Luke. Are there any examples where, even in the most polite circumstances, that Jesus nevertheless confronts with sin and calls for repentance? Yes. 
every time. Are there any examples where the text categorically affirms that Jesus interacts with sinners without speaking to them of their sin, but rather endorses them while still in direct willful rebellion with the commands of God and seeks to fellowship with them in that condition? Never. Luke does not inform us that there have, has been, doesn't, pardon me, Luke does inform us that there has been an extended interaction and an overnight billeting starting with, from, it would seem, the middle part of the day. He doesn't relate to us the conversation because by now we have a wonderfully accurate idea given the response and given Jesus' consistent behavior. All of this to say, don't let anyone be successful in making a point with your thinking that here, that this is a text that proves someone can come to Christ without being first confronted with the truth of who Jesus is, the truth of their own sin, the need for repentance and faith. That was not the point Luke was making, and beware of anyone who hijacks this text and says it was. Next week, Lord willing, we'll bore down into the statement by both Zacchaeus and the statement of Jesus, and we will see, I believe, repentance and faith here being faithful to the text. All right, so I said there were two false strategies. This passage is being employed to develop. Here is false strategy number two. The personal influence of a believer maintained by compassion is more powerful and a greater priority of a disciple than proclaiming truth and calling the sinner to repentance. Personal influence. Did you get from acts of compassion? And, and the influence that comes out of that is more important in converting the soul than the word of God and truth. Maintaining personal influence is more important than maintaining biblical clarity at the risk of offending the sinner. Well, I was planning on speaking about this three weeks ago. But this last week has furnished a fresh but painful example that I believe it would be helpful to address. A few months ago, a pastor that we know and love counseled a grandmother to attend her granddaughter's wedding. This young woman was marrying a woman after she had undergone gender reassignment. It was a transgender wedding, and the event was self-consciously and deliberately billed as such. The counsel given was, by this pastor, attend the wedding and bring a gift to a believer. Your compassion for the sinner may lead her to conversion, but the grandmother, in any case, maintains a place of influence in her granddaughter's life, and that, in this case, is paramount, is what's communicated. This council, of course, eventually leaked out and then blew up on the internet. And so, last Sunday evening, at the evening service, 
this pastor responded to all of the tumult by doubling down and insisting that this was the right counsel and that for believers to do something other strayed into the area of being judgmental and legalistic. Believers must do this as society changes. The pastor in question did not use this passage last week, but as the eruption happened on the internet and many voices, um, this passage was utilized as exhibit B of the very same point, which is, accept the individual where they are, communicate acceptance, maintain a place in their life of influence, and, and don't be so bothered about needing to exegete biblical truth. At the end, your influence will have a far more important, prioritized um, effect over the Word of God communicated. False strategy number two, maintaining personal influence is more important than maintaining biblical clarity at the risk of offending the sinner. Now, folks, has anyone noticed that our world is changing a bit? Wow, it is. And it, it, it's hard, and it's easy to lose our footing on this. And this is an issue that will face each of us with growing regularity as our culture vectors into madness. And with it, loved ones and family members vector into madness. What do we do? Right? Should we attend a gay marriage? Or a transgender marriage? Or for that matter, as someone exchanges vows, marriage vows, with a dolphin at SeaWorld. That's not a joke. As evangelism-minded disciples, should we adapt our speech to their preferred gender pronouns? Should we attend and support and celebrate? Here's the next big one, guys. Should we attend, support, and celebrate a person having their funeral in advance, called a send-off? Should we go to one of those as they avail themselves of medically-assisted suicide? Are you going to self-righteously stay home with your arms folded? Or are you going to, you'll be told, show love? What you gonna do? My daughter, who is not at all likely to give her opinion, my daughter, who is very articulate, had an exchange this week with a professing believer on social media. The conversation was triggered by this pastor's defense of his counsel last Sunday evening. That happened days ago. This woman that my daughter was talking to, as a consequence of airing of this issue and the mulling over of it, 
was now deciding to attend and support her daughter's abortion. What's more important? The reasoning goes, today's culture interprets acceptance and affirmation as love. You can't do anything about it, that's what they understand as love. It's more important that we show ourselves loving than biblical, is what you'll be told. Influence trumps truth. Swallow your self-righteousness and your theology and maintain your personal influence. The theory says that the greatest determining factors in reaching someone are influence and persuasion, and you will enjoy neither without first giving them affirmation in whatever moral condition and belief system you find them in. And if you don't... if if you're thinking today, well, that is, that is obscure and theor- theoretical and likely never to happen, it is happening now. And the likelihood is high that you will face it in some way, shape, or form, as my brother Paul would say, way, shape, or form. As with our first discussion, to use this text as a proof text requires that we see the conversion of Zacchaeus in verse 8 as happening in a complete absence of any interaction or conversation time with Jesus. That's the assumption, and that's the only way that this works as a proof text. And that's clearly not what Luke has very carefully chosen with his words to relate. We're not given insight into what the conversation included, only what the outcome of the visit was. Is conversion without confrontation with the truth ever, in this passage, reasonably inferred? That's a good question. Now, from the point of view of understanding a passage or figuring out what a passage really means, you need to understand something. That which people would argue is inferred from the passage must always take a back seat to what is explicitly said. That which is implicit never should be given preference over that which is explicit in the text. But, fair question, is it even vaguely inferred from the text? Is acceptance and affirmation of a sinner in their sinful behavior ever clearly taught in this passage or any other? Of Scripture and the pages of Scripture as a prerequisite of reaching them and is it clearly being articulated here and I think unless you have a predisposition to no but that's truth and I'm going to define the world through that you'd look at the text and go, no that's not what's being taught here and you go well maybe maybe that's what Jesus was intending as our takeaway until you give your head a shake and you get to verse 10 and he says, here's the takeaway. The takeaway is sovereignty. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That's what we're supposed to take away from this story, not some sort of a modernized evangelism method. And further to that, we need to 
understand and maybe really implement the instruction of the Lord to his disciples in the word of God. Let's take some things that are explicitly said in terms of our relationship to a world careening into madness. What are we supposed to do with it? Would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5? I'm doing this not to jump on the back of this individual who gave the bad advice. I'm just concerned that this might cloud or muddy the thinking of you folks. And, and you could end up not knowing how you're going to respond. I want you, when this hits, you go, oh, I already know how, what I'm supposed to do here. Okay? That's, what I, that's my goal. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, But immorality, pornea, and that term includes anything that is described as a sexual relationship outside the bounds of marriage. It includes all forms of um, the gay movement, homosexuality, plus a whole bunch of others. But pornea emphatically includes that and any other kind of sexual impurity. Okay, But immorality or any impurity, and there's our word <coughs> acatharsis, and you, if you want a really detailed understanding of what does the word acatharsis mean, would you please register for the singles conference? We're going to talk about that. Okay? Um, but it is, generally speaking, talking about uh, that which, participating in that which the Bible has said is sinful. It's more than that, but let's start there. So let immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you as proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man, and so how do we know that this person is an immoral person? Answer. They are continuing without repentance in a lifestyle the Bible has said is sinful. If they're participating in that sin and they have never repented of it, that sin becomes their identity. They become identified by their sin. Once you have repented and forsaken, you can be washed, cleansed, and justified. You, you have, a new, you have, you have a, a new identity. But if you are still clinging to that sin, that sin becomes your identity. Well, for this knows certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So much for the gay Christian movement. Seriously. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. God is, at some point in time, absolutely committed himself to bringing about wrath on that sin. 
either in the person of Christ to the repentant, or that person if they do not have a sin bearer. Therefore, here's our takeaway, therefore, do not be partakers with them. Don't be partakers with them. What does that mean? And, and it's a word, it's a compound word, which means to mix together with in a partnership. Don't mix together in some sort of a yoking partnership with these people. Okay? Don't do that. Why? For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. You need to walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness. How do I know how to walk when I'm being invited to all of these strange cultural events? The fruit of the light. Here's how me being in the light will give expression to itself. Consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate. He uses a second word here. And it means together fellowship like your family. It is based on our word of, it's an intensified word of our word koinonia, which means to fellowship together. Don't. Don't do that. Don't fellowship together like that. Don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead, rather, here's what you're called to do, even expose them. Even expose them. For it's a disgrace even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. Well, let me help you with just Exhibit A of, let's just deal with the one issue, the dreadful marriage. What's going to happen is one of the participants is going to probably, in our culture, walk up the aisle. What does everybody do? They stand up and give respect. Sometimes they applause, going, oh, good for you. Right? And then when they get up to the front, the officiant usually does a little bit of a, a preamble. Marriage was ordained by God. And it was initiated by God, it was designed by God. And, and it was actually honored by Jesus Christ in his presence at the marriage of Cana, right? You've heard that. And the inference is that that which is in Scripture is this. Or what you're about to observe is a subspecies and, and well represented by that which is in the Bible. Is it true? Is a marriage between two people of the same gender, is it marriage? And you could say, well, I, I don't know. I, I believe and they believe and, and the latest uh, Barna poll. It doesn't matter. Listen to the words 
of the front end of a traditional wedding ceremony. Marriage was ordained by who sets the parameters of what is acceptable? God. You could say, well, I don't know, we're, we're actually going to, we're planning on having an open marriage. We're, I mean, it's a, it's a contract between the two of us. If we, if we decide, it's, no, it's not. Who decides how you're supposed to behave if you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ in a marriage? God does. You're not allowed to sin, even if you agree to sin. Well, we're going to do this differently. Um, the lady is, is, is a, a little, has a little more scat to her, and she's a little brighter, and she, she actually likes being in charge. So actually, in this situation, we're, we're going to be non-traditional. We don't have to be kind of confined to all that. And, and in our marriage, the, the woman rides the, the kind of takes control of things, and, and the boy listens, and, and that's okay because we're agreed on No. Who defines marriage? God does. You do it on his terms. You do it on his terms. But anyway, they come up and there's this preamble about marriage. And then immediately after that, the individual who's the officiant is going to say, if anyone here today can show just cause... For these two not being united in marriage, listen, speak now or forever hold your peace. And if you don't choose to, if you choose to participate but don't expose, you have by your attendance and your silence agreed not only am I agreeing that this is appropriate and blessed by God, I am agreeing that I will never forever bring this up to you as exhibit A of sin. Are, are you free as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ to make that kind of a... Speak now or forever hold your peace. These non-biblical marriages are a construct to demand and acquire a vote of approval and the affirmation of their sin. That's why they're doing marriage and calling it marriage. That's the whole point of the deal, right? And then, at some point in time, there's going to be an exchange of vows. And they promise to love, honor, and cherish one another or some such. But it is a promise before God to egregiously sin with God's blessing. And then the officiant says, I now pronounce, which is a publicly declared divine blessing, which is a lie, a mixed marriage, an adulterous marriage, or whatever. And, and then the whole congregation gets up and they applaud and, and we celebrate darkness. Now, we, we beat up on um, homosexual marriage. The same actually applies if one of the individuals or both at the marriage ceremony do not have biblical grounds for remarriage. 
If anyone can show just cause why these two should not be united, speak now forever hold your peace. If you don't stand up and say something, and you're not willing to do that, you should at least say something ahead of time and stay home. Or if it's a situation where it is pretty obvious one is a professing believer and one is emphatically not a professing believer. Same thing. Same, same construct. We're out of time, but somebody brought lunch, so we'll keep going here. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have uh, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness and that's precisely it we can't be mixing together having koinonia fellowship with darkness what harmony has Christ with Belial or what has a believer in common with unbeliever or what agreement has the temple of God with idols we can't infer and clearly articulate to the, the world around us we're together on this. In fact, Romans chapter 1 says that's the very stance of an unbeliever who is not only participating, verse 26, in those deeds, but giving heartily approval to those who are doing it. That's the stance of an unbeliever. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus warns, there, understand, expect, that your stance of a believer is expected. It is cooked into the batter that you are going to have conflict in your family. Don't think I came to bring peace, I came to a sword, and I'm me, Christ, I am going to bring conflict between mother and daughter and all of those relationships. He says, because loyalty to Jesus is always going to be in the life of a genuine believer of far greater importance, of a far greater priority than even the closest of family relationships. Turn, if you would, as we close to 1 John chapter 1. If I say as we close, people ignore the fact that we're over time and I buy another three minutes. 1 John chapter 1. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, if I say I'm in fellowship with him and, and I'm doing this because I'm a disciple of Christ in fellowship with him, and I go and I walk in darkness... I'm walking in fellowship with and in the consort of darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. Because truth is not just something that is ontologically believed. Truth is something that is practiced. What you do. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light. We have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. That is the prerequisite for having fellowship. They're in the light. I'm in the light. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
If we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And that is verse 10. That is the statement that is being made at all of these public events. What I'm doing is right and it's not sinful, right? Join me. We need to walk in truth, which means that we know the truth and we walk in it. I can't contribute to their darkness by adjusting my use of their pronouns. Um, What I try and do is, very quickly, if I'm intent on evangelism, learn their name. That's a good start. Uh, I'd like to know how to refer to you. Would you be so kind as to share me your name? And, And start referring to him as a name. Pronouns are a shorthand for, I forget the guy's name, him. Learn the name and proceed on that basis. Okay, we're going to close. I would be very naive to believe that everybody in the sound of my voice right now is saved. I would be very naive to assume that what we talked about today doesn't poke in a very personal way people who are here or who are listening. Let me help you with something about who God is. God, as to his nature, cannot have communion and fellowship and accept unwashed and unrepentant sinners. As a consistent expression of his character, he can't have fellowship with unrepentant, unwashed sinners whose condition has not been altered. If you're here today and that's you, you can't have fellowship with God. You are dwelling under the wrath of God. Oh, but there's good news. Because Paul Further talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and such were some of you, but oh, there's something interesting happened. But you have been washed, you have been justified, you have been made holy, sanctified. So God can do that for a believer for, for somebody. He can, he can give them new life, He can pay for their sin debt, He can wash them, and He can declare them just on the basis of their faith. That He can do. So If you're here today and you're under the sound of my voice, God will not have fellowship with an unrepentant sinner, but he can and will save him and cleanse him if you'll come. Now we go into the communion service. Jesus and the entirety of the Trinity cannot and will not have communion and fellowship and accept an unrepentant sinner who's a believer. You're continuing to walk in the darkness and you have not been cleansed. He can't fellowship with, an, with a, a soiled saint, but he can wash him. You can cleanse them.
If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Ah, that's the sins that are impeding our fellowship. And he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Could I respectfully encourage you to do this in preparation for the, cons- the communion service that is to follow? Could I call on the music team?